Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor, and uh, I'm alone recording this intro because we have a very special show this week. On Monday night, Ben and I spent about an hour talking with former President Barack Obama uh, about some of the foreign policy topics in his new book, A Promised Land. It was a great conversation for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, he's the former president of the United States, and it's a really smart guy and fun to talk to. But also, I don't even think we said the name Donald Trump, which was just such a nice feeling. I somehow resisted the temptation to just reminisce about Iowa, uh, and instead we geeked out on a bunch of foreign policy stuff. So, you know, we got into stuff like his decision to send more troops to Afghanistan uh, and his very candid account of the tensions that developed between uh, President Obama, the White House, uh, and the senior Pentagon leadership during that time. We talked about Russia's changing leadership uh, and whether Vladimir Putin was was always really pulling the strings or whether Dmitry Medvedev had more autonomy than he was often given credit for. We got into his efforts to close Gitmo uh, and we talked about drones and we talked about the politics of terrorism and whether he felt like that constrained him. And then for all you you know super foreign policy geeks out there, we talked about a brilliant playwright uh, and Czech politician named Václav Havel, who appears several times in the book. And, you know, he offers warnings about expectations and the rising forces of nationalism and the changing autocrat. And, you know, it's just interesting to hear him really reflect on, you know, Havel and the people who inspired President Obama, you know, when he was younger and deciding to get into politics. And then I think you'll all love uh, Ben and President Obama digging into the Cairo speech, the process, and that constant balance of when a president should put forward a big vision versus, you know, trying to manage expectations for what's possible. So, the book is excellent. The conversation, I mean, I loved it. I hope you will too. Even if Obama just absolutely butchered the name of this podcast, just brutally butchered the name of Pod Save the World. And then he repeatedly taunted us about how much nicer it is in Hawaii right now versus basically everywhere else. But I don't think you'll find an interview with Obama where he talks about all of these subjects. And it was just really interesting and, and just fun to go full world out. So, um, Little scheduling note, we're going to be off for the next two weeks. So the next episode of Pod Save the World is going to come out on January 6th. We're going to give everybody a little break. But that's the day after the Georgia runoff Senate elections. And if you want to help out with those elections before it's too late, head over to votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia. You can find out you know, stuff you can do right now. You can sign up to adopt Georgia. You can find volunteer activities. You can find ways to donate. You guys are doing incredible work to help out uh, Ossoff and Warnock, the candidates down in Georgia. There's even more you can do. We're just incredibly grateful to everybody who's, who's you know, pitching in here. So uh, without further ado, here's Ben in my conversation with former President Barack Obama. We are thrilled and honored to welcome on our guest today, uh, President Barack Obama, the author of the new book, A Promised Land. Uh, President Obama, it's great to see you. It is great to see you. More importantly, uh, the guy who launched uh, podcast the world. Let's face it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I I get no we'll royalties, but I'm I am proud of you guys, yeah. uh, uh, sir. The check is in the mail. So. I just wanted to first of all tell the listeners. So you know, you and Ben uh, have been writing together forever, and so I've been, you've been reading each other's work. I binged most of A Promised Land over the weekend, and look, uh, without blowing any smoke up either of your asses, it's a great read, right? Like I was along 
for the ride for a lot of this journey. But like the detail of exactly what you talked about during your dinner with Dmitry Medvedev is fascinating. The the consistently hilarious and insightful uh, comments from Sasha and Malia, like just make the thing a joy to read. So I really think people will like it. And then look for listeners of the show, like foreign policy, the cool thing is you do a lot of basic history on big issues in a digestible way, right? So if you want to understand why Israel and Palestine don't get along, there's a primer in there on the conflict uh, before the talk. So just just a plug for how, why people will learn a lot from this book, because it's, it's really great. I appreciate that. Thank you, Tommy. Yeah, I mean, one of the goals was um, obviously to make it readable, right? You want to make it a story so uh, people want to turn the page, especially when you're writing about something that most people can look up, you know, you, you, you right. want to make it a, a compelling narrative. But um, but part of my goal was uh, to, for a lay reader who's interested in some of the global forces that are shaping uh, our world, uh, you know, I, I wanted them to have some context, as I said in the preface, without having to refer to end notes or footnotes, right? And, and to, to give people a little bit of background uh, you know, why is it that uh, the Gulf Arabs don't get along with the Iranians, right? Even though they're both Muslim. And, you know, what, what is it about, uh, you know, some of the changes after the Berlin Wall that, um, you know, might lead uh, some in Eastern and Central Europe uh, to be skeptical about the EU and and you know liberalism and and so I, you know, I'm glad you picked up on that because my hope is is that not not everybody's going to be following all of this but it's actually um, a lot more um, uh, coherent and understandable than I think sometimes news stories make it out to be um, you know that if you you just go back in some cases 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. Um, you can kind of see the outlines of, of what is it that's shaping uh, a lot of foreign policy conflicts that seem like they've been around forever. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, so there's also a lot of great characters. And so, you know, uh, Václav Havel is a surprise star in this book. Uh, and for those who don't know, Havel is a playwright. He's a dissident. He became the first president of the Czech Republic. Uh, and, and in the book, we first encounter him during this stop in Prague on one of your foreign trips. Uh, you guys have a brief meeting. And, and I remember I was on that trip. And I remember that meeting so well because I had read uh, Summer Meditations in college. And I brought along my copy of the book right here with me on the trip because I naively thought that spokespeople on foreign trips with the president have time to to read books. That is not how it works. But um Havel is prescient in the way he warns you about the double-edged sword of high expectations and then how autocrats had evolved and how the economic crisis was strengthening the forces of nationalism. And then you mention him again in the context of the Cairo speech and then again uh, after your conversation with Prime Minister Singh about Hindu nationalism and anti-Muslim sentiment in India. And so I guess my question to you is just what drew you to Havel and, and did you find it depressing talking with him uh, about the rise of nationalism and how easy it was to predict and yet so difficult to prevent? Well, I, look, what drew me to him was uh, what had drawn you to him. Uh, I, had, I had read his works in college. And as I, as I write about, uh, he was the example of someone who had grown out of a 
uh, a mass movement, a social movement from the bottom up, uh, had then entered politics and uh, his soul had remained intact, right? So, so you know, there, are ha- there were a, a handful of political leaders uh, that I uh, looked to as an example, because as, as I described, my inspiration wasn't JFK uh, or, you know, uh, some other uh, elected official. My inspiration, you know, was Gandhi, and Lech Walesa and you know the civil rights uh, workers uh, in SNCC, and it took me a while to feel comfortable with the idea that you could bring about change through uh, electoral politics because I had the sort of skepticism that I think a lot of young people, at least growing up in America, had towards politicians. And so when I see uh, Havel and uh, Mandela, really, those were the two where I, I thought, oh, you can make that transition, retain some sense of connection to the mass movement that produced you, uh, and, and still uh, enter into government. Uh, so, so that was why uh, I was keen on meeting him. Uh, it's interesting when I when I uh, when I met him, it was early enough in my presidency that. I found the meeting inspiring, but not depressing, because I thought that the caution he gave me, which was that um, you know you're you're going to uh, be burdened by high expectations, people thinking that you're going to wave a magic wand and and suddenly uh, a lot of these historical forces uh, are going to go away, uh, but also his warning that uh, there was an illusion that somehow after the Berlin Wall came down, that somehow all issues of nationalism and uh, you know, conflict in Europe were, were gone. Um, you know, those were things that I understood intellectually, but I think it was early enough in my, uh, in my presidency where I felt like, yeah, I, I see that, but I'll be able to overcome those things. And and the reason I think that it recurs as a theme throughout the book is because I keep on coming back to it and I start saying, yeah, this is harder and deeper. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, th- th- there's more stubborn resistance to a vision of a uh, inclusive, democratic, liberal order uh, than maybe I had anticipated. And, and, and so that becomes sort of a, uh, a marker for me uh, that I, that I uh, you know, uh, find myself drawn back to uh, in a number of circumstances throughout my presidency. Well, you know, one of the, one of the areas where you mentioned Hoppel is the, the Cairo speech, and, and I thought it'd be kind of a, a cool opportunity to, to talk to you about a speech that we, we worked on together. Um, and you describe, you know, beautifully and perfectly kind of the objective of that speech after the difficulty of the Bush years and with all of the history that the U.S. has had in the Middle East, of you know speaking some hard truths, but but allowing us to see each other, allowing Americans to see uh, Muslims, and particularly in that part of the world, and allowing them to see us. Um, you you say have a great line. You you say hearing such basic history from the mouth of a U.S. president would catch people off guard. You know, calling out essentially the indifference we had to repression, but also calling out the fact that you know the Islamic fundamentalism in the region wasn't the answer to that. Um, and obviously, you know, that speech in the moment, um, 
you know, drew a lot of praise. Uh, uh, you know, I think there was a feeling that it was a, a, a different kind of message from U.S. president and from you, someone who had a different perspective on power than anybody who's ever held the office, not just uh, not just as the first black president, but as someone who lived in Indonesia and been on the other end of you know, a CIA-sponsored coup that had led to huge violence. But but you posed this question, you know, I, I've gotten in miniature what I'm sure you've gotten a lot, which is, well, look at the Middle East and, you know, wasn't that speech naive to give? Um, you know, some of the things you talked about, actually, we did make progress on removing troops or an Iran, Iran nuclear deal, but obviously the Arab-Israeli conflict and the repression in the region continues. And, and you raised this question, you know, how useful is it to describe the world as it should be when efforts to achieve that are bound to fall short. Um, and you don't really answer the question. You kind of leave it to the reader to, to, to answer themselves. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, I, at the same time that I can see the lack of progress, you know, I still meet young people from time to time from that part of the world who, who trace their founding of an NGO to hearing that speech or their entrance into movement politics to that. And, and I'm wondering how, you, how do you evaluate the impact of a speech like that? Is it something that is measurable by developments in countries? Is it something that's measurable in the kind of intangible inspiration that you pass on to others? Do you regret any pieces of it? I mean, how do you, how do you judge something like the Cairo speech that is more a statement of belief than it is a, a policy? Yeah, I think the, I think these are a couple of separate issues involved in this that that I struggle with, right? One is when you deliver a speech, are you um, and, and you paint a portrait of what's possible? Um, is that useful if you know that you're not likely to get there to arrive at the promised land? Is the vision itself worthwhile? Uh, and then the second question is uh, the work that comes behind the speech. Right, and how well does it match up to uh, what you've said? And I think it remains useful to paint a vision. Uh, you know, the, the you know what Scripture says, right? Without a, a vision, the people will perish. For me, at least, uh, I I continue to believe that people need to hear. Uh, some image out there of what might be possible. And what we tried to describe in the Cairo speech was a circumstance in which uh, the United States and by extension, the West appreciates Muslim culture, uh, can understand the angers and resentment that might exist on the street of Muslim countries in terms of how in a blunderbuss fashion uh, we've sometimes operated. Um, and at the same time, the uh, Muslim youth in particular can say to themselves, look, we, we are uh, in possession of what's necessary to change our countries. Uh, we can be allies with, you know, NGOs and folks from the outside and multilateral organizations. But at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to face up to some hard truths in inside our own country, which would include, I think, uh, trying to reconcile modernity with uh, their religious faith and the faith of their countries, right? Um, which, so that, for example, um, in my mind at least, and I say in the speech, 
it is time to update uh, certain practices that uh, would allow women to fully participate in Muslim societies. Um, and that, that side of it, I don't make any apologies for. I think when it, when you're the president of the United States, though, you are then tested by the work that's done afterwards. And you are always going to uh, take a risk by saying, all right, here's where we need to go. No matter how many caveats you set up that, look, we, we're not going to get there all the way. We're not going to resolve every uh, you know, conflict that may exist between uh, Sunni and Shia, or you know, we're not going to be able to uh, completely uh, undo the corruption and, and uh, challenges to uh, you know, the economy in a place like Egypt that's been stagnating for decades. Uh, we're not going to be able to unravel that entirely in, in a few years. Uh, you know, you're always then going to be subject to the accusation potentially that, well, you know, big talk, but uh, but look, nothing nothing happened. Um, and I, I guess that's a sort of a risk that uh, you have to take, knowing that it will then subject you to. Uh, possibilities of, of uh, accusations that you fell short, you didn't follow through, or you're potentially hypocritical. The, the one thing I felt good about, and, and I thought I made this clear in, in the Cairo speech, is that um, we set a course for what we thought U.S. policy should be. I don't feel any... Uh, I don't feel as if we did not shoot for that vision in all of our policies. Uh, I mean, we genuinely did try to take the interests of the Muslim population into account. Um, we did try to promote human rights in the region where we could. We did do our best to try to, uh, uh, you know, broker a peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and for that matter, we tried to get the Iranians to talk to the Saudis in a way that would uh, lessen sectarian conflict in the region. Uh, what we could not do, I think, is overcome all the deep-rooted fears and interests that existed uh, and had preceded us and would uh, continue on after uh, after I'd left office. And uh, that doesn't mean, though, that the effort wasn't worth it. Uh, and and I, I am skeptical. Uh, I, typically, I guess, I think the criticism of something like the Cairo speech comes from two places, either from the left, in which case they'll point to, well, the fact is, is that you were still carrying on counterterrorism, or you were still doing business with the Saudis, despite what they were doing in Yemen, or Right on and on, uh, and 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 that criticism I take to heart, but I try to uh, explain in the book uh, that we couldn't remake U.S. policy out of whole cloth. Uh, there there are still factors that we had to take into account in terms of our own security interests uh, and so forth. Um, but that doesn't mean we were ignoring everything we said or we didn't believe what we said. Um, the criticism of the right. 
uh, which is essentially that uh, we shouldn't even try to promote human rights, for example, because that lets the lid off things and uh, makes our authoritarian allies nervous. Uh, that I do not buy. Uh, and, and there's nothing that happened subsequently where I said, oh, you know what? Uh, we should have let uh, Mubarak roll tanks into Tahrir Square and kill a whole bunch of, of kids uh, the way they did in Tiananmen. Uh, and that would have resulted in a better outcome. Um, you know, we, we should have never said anything uh, about the Arab Spring uh, because, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, it, it was never possible for us to have a pluralistic uh, democracy in, in the region. I, that kind of cynical take, um, when I look at the sweep of history, uh, I don't get any sense that the outcomes end up being better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if uh, you foreclose the possibility of, of greater freedom, greater equality, greater yeah. prosperity, and so forth. Yeah. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, if you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Speaking of, you know, deep-rooted conflicts that predated you, I mean, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the war in Afghanistan. You spent a lot of time in your first term, you know, working on the war in Afghanistan. Um, in 2009 in particular, the White House conducted two separate reviews of the policy one of which was quite extensive. It was chaired by you personally, uh, and you ended up sending additional uh, troops to Afghanistan twice that year. So two questions for you. I mean, first, you're very candid in the book about tensions that developed between you and the White House and Pentagon uh, leadership during that process, especially Bob Gates and Admiral Mike Mullen. Uh, and I was hoping you could tell the story of that contentious Oval Office meeting and, and maybe just what it felt like in the moment to feel, I think jammed is the word that was used most often, by the Pentagon as a decision as significant as sending more troops into harm's way. And then second, I mean, when we sit here today and we look at the war in Afghanistan and how it's going, you know, 11 years after you took office, which was well after the war started, is there part of you that wonders whether, you know, we could have sent fewer troops uh, into battle and the conditions would be the same and we could have further resisted some of the demands from the Pentagon for more, more, more? Well, uh, uh the tension uh, was, I think, uh, well-meaning on all sides. I, I, Afghanistan was a tough problem. And I think 
as I describe in the book, the a lot of the tensions arose out of the fact that uh, Washington policymakers had uh, embarked on a bad policy in Iraq, diverted a huge amount of resources from Afghanistan. And so by the time we get in, we've essentially, I won't say lost six years, but six years in which it might have been possible immediately after driving the Taliban out to make a big investment in Afghanistan to essentially do some nation building there uh, so that uh, you, you could consolidate some of the gains that had been made in terms of development and education and, and anti-corruption efforts. That's not what had happened. What, what had occurred though in Iraq was uh, because of some of the screw-ups by folks like Bremer and, and uh, Rumsfeld and others, uh, essentially the Bush administration had turned over the keys to the generals. And they had done a, a pretty extraordinary job just of stabilizing Iraq. And uh, you know, Petraeus genuinely did make significant gains in, in stemming the bloodshed, in part with the assistance of folks like Ryan Crocker and the diplomatic work and the brokering of, of deals with uh, Sunni tribal leaders in Iraq and so forth. But what happens is more and more, the Pentagon essentially is making policy, uh, sometimes in conjunction with the CIA, but, but uh, you have less civilian control of the policymaking apparatus in Iraq those habits built up. So by the time we come in, in some ways, the, the, the path has been charted for Iraq, right? There's going to be a wind down. Uh, and uh, the question for me is just how do we execute and implement and, and stay on track with that? But in Afghanistan, now the impulse, I think, is to duplicate what from the Pentagon's view at least worked in Iraq, which is let's just put more in and, and we will double down. And, uh, you know, as you guys will recall, uh, the, the phrase that was repeated again and again was, you know, you gotta listen to the generals on the ground. They know better, write them a check and get out of the way. And that's what I was resisting. And so, you know, the tensions I had with Bob Gates uh, and Mike Mullen, uh, in part also growing out of statements made by Dave Petraeus and uh, General McChrystal and, and others, um, as, I, as I say uh, in that chapter, I didn't doubt their sincerity, right? They genuinely believed that we had to initiate what was called a coin strategy uh, a full coin strategy uh, in Afghanistan to be successful, meaning a counterinsurgency strategy, a lot more resources, a lot more troops, a lot more money. Um, the, the problem was that uh, those habits of not having civilian interference and asking questions, hey, you know, this is going to cost us an extra 10, 20, 30 billion dollars. What does this mean we can't do with respect to our national security if we're making that huge of a commitment in Afghanistan. Those kinds of questions hadn't been asked for a while. Uh, and so the assumption was once 
the generals made a decision, then that was sort of the end of the, the, the conversation. That's what I resisted. And I, what I try to reflect in that chapter is, is not any ill will on anybody's side, but as you point out, uh, there does come a point in which I call in Gates and um, and I call in uh, Mullen and I and I say to him, uh, listen, when I uh, ask for a deliberative process to figure out what we're going to do on this very difficult strategy, uh, I don't expect it to be litigated in the press. Um, and to some degree, that helped stop that. Um, but as you know, I, I record in a later chapter, um, I think General McChrystal still had those habits and he was an extraordinary warrior, uh, you know, who had taken over in Afghanistan, had done some incredible work in Iraq. Uh, I actually thought very highly of him, but uh, when, you know, he does this Rolling Stone article revealing this general skepticism towards all civilian restraint or control. Uh, uh, I had to relieve him of, of his uh, of his duties and and uh, that was a very difficult decision. As far as the substance of, of, of Afghanistan, look, at the time I had to ask myself the question, how much of a difference will these additional troops make? Um, so uh, I continue to ask that question. My, my instinct is that things were perilous enough, tenuous enough at the time that if we had not put in more resources at that time, we're talking about 2009, 2010 to 2011, um, that the Taliban really would have or could have overrun the major urban areas in Afghanistan. And that outcome at the time was not tolerable, given the fact that Al-Qaeda was still active and the, the, the prospect of Afghanistan once again being a base for terrorist activity against the homeland, uh, what was not a uh, position that I was willing to take. Uh, what I think always made the decision difficult was that I knew even with those additional troops, we were not going to remake Afghanistan. Um, but it did purchase us the time to engage in the strategic defeat of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and to some degree, uh, stabilize Afghanistan enough where if in fact, we now start drawing down troops uh, all the way, uh, there is at least the possibility, the prospect that Afghan security forces can uh, maybe engage uh, enough with the uh, with the Taliban and other forces there to, to get a stalemate and to keep uh, uh, terrorism from uh, reblossoming in, in, in that region. But, I, you know, uh, nowhere is the uncertainties of the presidency <laughs> greater than when you're talking about uh, a situation like Afghanistan, uh, in, in terms of seeing how it's going to play out and trying to engage in counterfactuals about uh, what would have happened if you had made a different decision uh, at any given point. Yeah. So just moving through the some of the, uh, the foreign policy of the book, I was struck by how much, you know, one of the things that you only fully appreciate in, in government is the extent to which 
who the leaders of other countries are matter. You know, when 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 Yitzhak Rabin is the prime minister of Israel, you can get a peace deal. When Bibi Netanyahu is, it, it's harder. Um, and one of the countries that jumps out in here, and I think you deliberately make the point in the book, is Russia, where in the time in this book, Dmitry Medvedev is president. And I'm struck by how many things we got done, you know, to, to read this, you know, the New START Treaty and we're resupplying our troops to Russia, the Iran sanctions that basically led to the nuclear deal required Russian cooperation and, and on and on. Um, and you have a, a, a pretty remarkable juxtaposition of the two leaders on your, your trip to Russia, where you describe a dinner with Medvedev that was very familiar to you. You know, he's talking about his workout routine. He's talking about you know the U.S. rock music that he likes. He's a Deep Purple fan, and 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 Michelle's there, and the, you know the wives are getting along, and 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 you know it sounds like a normal evening. And I remember just I was reading that and just thinking, I can't imagine Vladimir Putin having <laughs> that evening with you. Uh, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture of Medvedev because, as you point out, you know he's a participant in a corrupt system. He tolerates it. He's 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 surfed it in many ways. But then you describe Putin and your first meeting with Putin, and it's just a, a, a 45 minute, you know, grievance filled, you know, rant of sorts um, about the wrongs done to Russia. And, you know, it kind of foreshadows, obviously, the kind of nationalism that he pursued when he came back to the presidency. One question that I've always had in mind, I, I, I just want to get your view of is when Medvedev was president and Putin was prime minister, and we were making all that progress, and it did seem that here's this kind of Western oriented character, Medvedev, who represents you know, one part of Russia. Um, how much do you think Medvedev was getting out ahead of Putin? Um, you know, our assumption, I think, had been that Putin must have been signing off on, on this. But like, given how different they are and given how different things were, you know, after Putin came back, do you think that there was more going on underneath the surface uh, in terms of Medvedev pushing out ahead of Putin? And as we just think about Russia, what do those two characters tell us about the different mindsets inside of Russia. If Medvedev is this kind of more, again, a corrupt figure. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but, a, a, you know, kind of a Western-oriented guy. And then Putin is obviously this very kind of almost czarist figure. Like, how, how, do you, how do you read the two of them in terms of what they say about Russia? Well, look, as, as I point out, you know, uh, and I'm not the first to say this, it's, it's not particularly original, but I, I think Russia has always had this sort of Janus face quality to it, right? Uh, it, it, it both looks west and east uh, and has these strains of uh, culture uh, where in, in certain moments, you know, you'll get Peter the Great and they're very much oriented towards, uh, you know, let's uh, uh, show the Europeans how civilized and how modern we are and we'll embrace, you know, whatever the uh, late, latest uh, trends are. And then there are other times where, look, uh, that's not us. Mother Russia, you know, uh, operates uh, along a different system and, and uh, you know, has a different soul. And, and you know, some of these things are stereotypical. Um, I, I think that a lot of the, the differences between Medvedev and Putin and I tried to describe these, are biographical and generational, right? Um, I mean, Putin is much more of a creature who comes up through the ranks of the Soviet system and is a well-established uh, uh, and, and, you know, reasonably powerful mid-level official uh, at the time that the Berlin Wall 
falls and and that is a traumatic experience for him to see the world and the system he had operated under crumble before his eyes medvedev who's younger than i am uh you know he's experiencing uh, these changes as a young man uh and is probably seeing opportunity right and and uh, a, a, an opening and an awakening um and and so i think that some of the differences have to do both with their temperaments and personalities, but also how they came up. Uh, as I point out, Medvedev was also relatively privileged coming up, whereas Putin is much more somebody who had to scrap and claw his way uh, into power. And, and uh, uh, that probably accounts for some of those differences as well. Uh, and it also meant that Putin was probably more attuned to uh, the sense of anger, resentment, aggrieve, you know, feelings of others taking advantage of a weak Russia and so forth in a way that Medvedev uh, didn't embody. Um, now, as I point out, you know, uh, Medvedev operated as uh, Putin's uh, consigliere and, and uh, chief of staff and advisor. And we assumed early on that all the work that Medvedev was doing with us was signed off on by Putin. I'm not sure to this day that that is wrong. As I point out, it's really, uh, and, and this is an example of, of how sometimes contingent you get a sense history may be. A, a couple of things happen. Uh, only one of the, the things that happens uh, first occurs in volume one of, of my book, and, and it'll uh, some of the other factors uh, play a, a prom prominent part of, in volume two. Uh, what happens towards the end of volume one, midway through my presidency, is Libya. And I do think that um, that may be a circumstance where Putin, I can't imagine that Putin agreed to have the UN amb ambassador from Russia to the UN uh, sign on to a broad mandate to protect uh, citizens uh, who were at risk of, of being slaughtered in Benghazi. Um, but you do get a sense that perhaps Putin said, let me give Medvedev enough rope to hang himself on that issue, right? And, and you, that's the first time where you start seeing at least a public divide uh, and Putin sensing that perhaps uh, Medvedev is too comfortable uh, with uh, the Americans or Europeans or the West sort of dictating uh, terms of, of how uh, the international order should operate. What, what happens later, and you see this at the end of my first term, so we're talking 2012, so, as you may recall, Putin has to run for re-election. And right around 2012, his polling drops significantly. Um, now, for a, a, an American or, or, or Western politician, his poll numbers are still pretty darn high, right? They, they, they dropped down to like 60% or something, but uh, I think they had dropped 10, 15% from his high watermark. He's running for reelection now. He's, he's decided I'm gonna take back the presidency. Medvedev is shunted aside. And when you look at the transcripts of the speeches, it's in the run-up to that re-election. Because you'll also recall 
That's when you start getting actually thousands of people in Moscow protesting against Putin and the regime. And, and so I think that what happens is, is that Putin starts suddenly feeling uh, that, you know what, uh, I've let a little, I, I've, I've been too loose on the reins here and I could lose everything. He yanks that back, finds that it is convenient politically to play up Russian nationalism, to uh, oppose more vocally uh, and in much harsher terms, uh, uh, U.S. policy uh, to set us up as as a boogeyman, uh, and then the third factor that uh, I think uh, we all recall uh, is that suddenly Ukraine decides we want to leave the Russian orbit, uh, and you get the entire uh, situation in Crimea. Uh, all of which, by the way, uh, as I'll describe in, in volume two. Uh, this notion that somehow Putin had this all planned out, you know, while he was worrying about uh, whether there was enough snow in Sochi uh, right. <laughs> is just not the case, right? Uh, it, it, that's an example of something happening where he sees suddenly Ukraine following a path uh, that some of the other uh, satellite states or former satellite states of the Soviet Union uh, had followed uh, with the various color revolutions. And at that point, I think, is when you see a sharp divide. Uh, and, and Putin himself makes a decision. So uh, it's not clear to me that Putin, from the beginning, uh, was so convinced of the necessity of following a path different from Medvedev, as much as it is that Putin whose main concern was self-preservation, started changing his orientation in response to various events that he thought might weaken his grip on power. God, I'll, I'll never forget. This isn't in the book, but I'll never forget that last like May 2012 uh, G8 at Camp David when Putin had just taken over, but he sent Medvedev instead. And it was like their last hurrah. And I remember being in the bar with Jay Carney and some staffers. Some yeah. Medvedev people walked in and someone on the advanced staff was like, so are you going to go work for uh, President Putin now to one of Medvedev's aides? And Jay Carney was like, that's that's not that's not really how it works. And then I think Medvedev's team ordered like 37 hamburgers to his house at one in the morning. And uh, I'm sure the Marines were were thrilled about that. But um, I digress. So in reading the book, there were lots of uh, nostalgia, lots of like interesting points. The the chapter that made me the most frustrated all over again, like I was reliving it, was the section on Gitmo. Um, and the quick and dirty version for listeners is that closing uh, the prison in Guantanamo Bay went from issue with bipartisan support to this bizarro political reality where Republicans started acting like it wasn't safe to try terrorists in Article Three courts or house Gitmo detainees in a supermax prison in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. Uh, and, you know, in other words, like 11 years after 9-11, the politics of terrorism was still completely irrational. And I thought about that part. And then I thought about a, a passage later in the book where you were talking about U.S. counterterrorism policies and the young men who become terrorists. And you said you wanted to save them or send them to school, but, quote, um, uh, and yet the world they were part of and the machinery I commanded more often had me killing them instead. And that made me wonder if you felt like the politics of terrorism were so broken 
that it almost forced your hand to con to continue, you know, controversial policies, uh, and you didn't have the choice to say like fully scrap the drone program. Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, let's separate uh, Gitmo from uh, counterterrorism uh, more broadly. With respect to Gitmo, uh, I absolutely had a choice. I chose to close Gitmo, and Congress stopped me. And uh, Congress stopped me, by the way, on a bipartisan basis. Um, and you know, what what struck me as I was uh, writing the book was. Uh, the reminder of how fast Gitmo politics pivoted. I mean, we were only in like six months when suddenly, you know, not just Republicans, but uh, conservative Democrats like Jim Webb, and then later even a bunch of liberal Democrats uh, uh, suddenly said, oh, the, the idea of housing terrorists on U.S. soil, uh, that worries us. And as I point out in the book, there was a distinction between high value, you know, leaders within Al Qaeda who were housed in uh, Guantanamo, uh, and that releasing them would have been a serious problem. But nevertheless, there was no reason why we could not imprison them in U.S. prisons because, in fact, there were other high-value tar targets who had been tried by the Bush administration and were also uh, housed without incident in U.S. prisons. Um, and a whole bunch of Gitmo prisoners, though, were basically low-level fighters that had been swept up. And the Bush administration itself had released like 500 of them and sent them back home. Uh, we were trying to deal with the last 200. Uh, but the degree to which the boogeyman of terrorism, uh, as I describe in the book, the notion that these were somehow supervillains, that if you brought them on U.S. soil, who knows what might happen, uh, I think uh, caught fire in Congress very quickly. And legislatively, they prevented us from doing everything that we needed to do. Um, and later on, they would not even let us try some of these folks in Article Three courts. Uh, and, and that had support within the Democratic Party. So yes, I, I think it's fair to say that we underestimated not just the complexity of, of, of how to try many of these uh, Gitmo prisoners who, as I described, you know, it wasn't like there were these great, uh, you know, uh, uh, court or, or records of their, uh, you know, capture and evidence and chains of evidence and so forth. I mean, it, you know, their their files were a shambles. So from a legal perspective, trying them in, in Article Three court was difficult. But what we also underestimated was um, the, the power of fear. Uh, and that was still operating significantly. Uh, but you know, Gitmo was never a situation where I was struggling with what the right thing to do was. Yeah, it was no, just was how, how to navigate Congress to actually do it. And, you know, I, I think that you can make an argument. Um, and, and sometimes I've wondered what would have happened if 
rather than saying we're going to have a year-long process. Uh, in the first month, I just issued an order, closed that down, moved these folks, you know, put up some security, uh, uh, you know, uh, perimeter, you know, in, in one of our existing military facilities and house them there until we figure out a more permanent solution, whether that might have worked. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that that would not have triggered uh, a freak out while we were obviously doing other things like trying to save the economy from a Great Depression. Um, you know, so, but, but you could make an argument that maybe if we had just moved more quickly uh, without uh, worrying about process, uh, that, uh, that maybe we could have gotten uh, more done on that front. I, I, at the end of the day, I probably don't think so, but, but it's something I think about. With respect to counterterrorism generally, um, that, that is a hard issue uh, because the fact of the matter is, as you guys know, because you were part of the administration and, and uh, had access to various levels of intelligence that was you know, coming through the transom, uh, there were folks who would happily blow up a New York subway, if if they could, uh, and it had no uh, no hesitation in, in killing uh, all kinds of innocent uh, innocent civilians if they had the capacity. And because they're non-state actors, they are embedded in countries and and uh, remote areas, but populated areas uh, where uh, had we sent in additional troops. For example, into the Fatah, uh, we've got not only more collateral damage, but we're risking now uh, a, a complete breach with a nuclear power in Pakistan that we also depend on uh, for supply lines into Afghanistan. Um, and so you then look at, uh, is there a way to use drones effectively to target those individuals uh, while as much as possible, avoiding uh, death uh, or, or, or the killing of, of civilians uh, who are in close proximity. And, you know, I, I talk more about this again in volume two, because it, what, what happened with the drone program was my awareness, not that there was more quote unquote collateral damage, which is a bloodless way of saying innocent people being killed with the drone program than there would have been if we had sent in troops. Uh, in fact, the statistics uh, and data that we collected actually showed pretty consistently that you get a lot more civilian death when you have conventional forces or air power going after uh, these, uh, these networks than you do with drones. Uh, I, I, what I discovered and ultimately led to us trying to reform how we were using drones was the bloodlessness of it, the degree to which it was, uh, it felt antiseptic, even the way it was talked about uh, within uh, the, the national security apparatus, led me to conclude that there was a danger there of people not understanding what exactly we're doing when we order a, a kinetic shot 
even if it's well targeted, uh, and that we have to uh, we have to have some controls on this thing and 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 uh, understand this is still war, even if we're not deploying our own troops. Uh, uh, to you know, we're we're still uh, firing missiles uh, at people, and uh, and and that there is a moral element to that that has to be taken into account. That doesn't mean, by the way, that at some point an American president doesn't have to make that choice. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes I think critics of counterterrorism seem to think that there is some binary choice, either you're engaging in the drone program or you're not, and there's some other way in which you can engage in some uh, uh, you know, law enforcement operation in the Fatah that uh, arrests people the way you might, you know, engage in a, a raid on a house, uh, you know, in, in Baltimore or, or in, uh, you know, Des Moines. Um, those options were not available. And so you then have, a, you have to decide, all right, uh, are we going to allow this network, let's say the bomb maker, al-Siri in Yemen, are you going to allow him to make and design more and more sophisticated bombs that he can somehow plant uh, on you know, uh, cargo ships or uh, planes or trains or what have you? Uh, or are we going to try to take him out? Uh, and if we are going to try to take him out, then what has to be acknowledged and sometimes I think is not is that there is no clean, simple, effective way of doing that without some risk uh, to, to that you know you may miss or there's somebody who's in the vicinity. And, and that is heartbreaking. It is uh, morally something that I wrestled with and I think a lot of folks in our administration wrestled with. Um, but sometimes it's it's something that I don't hear critics wrestle with, as well intentioned as they are, right? So so their moral impulse is correct. That, uh, that it's terrible if even one drone shot hits somebody who has meant no harm to the United States. Uh, and yet, what is also horrible is if. Uh, if a bomb goes off and and a uh, hundred people in a city are 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 killed, uh, and and that is a question that you have to wrestle with um, uh, if you are in that position. Um, if you're not, then it's easier to to, to speak more theoretically about it. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. 
So just I'll I'll wrap here with um, uh, you know a, a question about Copenhagen. Uh, I'm actually going to put two questions in this. It won't be one of those five parters from a press conference, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I wanted I wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about the uh, light. Tommy, Tommy knows all about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. um, every, every, every White House uh, every White House correspondent knows this trick. Uh, is that is that Major Garrett down there? All right, here we go. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I love that you obviously included the Copenhagen scene, uh, the climate talks there. Um, uh, you know, for for a couple reasons. I mean, uh, one because I think people need to read this and understand that when you hear about the Paris Agreement, the 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 birthplace of that agreement was in Copenhagen, right? Because right. that was the first time we we're able to kind of agree upon at least a framework where everybody was doing something to reduce their emissions, including China and India, and obviously the U.S. as well as right. Copenhagen ends up being uh, the foundation stone on which we are then able eventually to achieve uh, Paris. Yeah. I even, mean, though at, even though at the time, Copenhagen was viewed by, and understandably by a lot of climate activists as a failure, um, we we actually snatched this little nugget, yeah. this basic principle uh, that then over successive years, we're able to uh, use as a lever uh, to engage the Chinese, eventually the Indians, uh, and uh uh, finalize uh, a Paris agreement uh, towards the end of my second term. Yeah. And Christiana Figueres, you know, who was the UN top uh, climate negotiator, described it to me as the most successful failure in the history of the United Nations. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, because of the basic formula, everybody is commits to emissions reductions. It's going to be different in different countries. The richer countries are kind of paying into a fund to help the poorer countries uh, develop cleaner energy. Uh, you know, the, the formula that led to Paris. But when I read it again, the thing that struck me, and it's such a, it's a great scene, which I'll get to in a second, but it's actually the international order, you know, a term that's thrown around a lot, um, that, that we live with for eight years is very evident because we show up, the conference has fallen apart. The reason it's fallen apart is because the Europeans are basically trying to negotiate, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, which is the 90s version of a climate agreement. The Chinese controlled more votes than America did by the time you know we showed up. And it's because all the developing countries were deciding with them because their position was the developing world, which includes us, doesn't have to do anything. Um, and, and, and you described the remarkable meeting where you walk in and the Chinese premier, uh, Premier Wen is essentially chairing a meeting with India, Brazil, South Africa, and Russia, you know, emblematic of the, you know, countervailing bloc to the West. And, and they're not they're not just chairing the meeting, but they're also dodging me. Yeah, they're, they're dodging you. And, and there's a great scene. So, uh, you know, we we were trying to get meetings with the, the, the Chinese and the Brazilians and the Indians. We couldn't find them. We finally heard that there was this meeting going on. You walk through this scrum of Chinese security to get in the meeting. Uh, I was pummeled in that scrum, <laughs> like like literally physically thrown to the ground. Um, and you walk in and say, you know, are you ready for me, Premier Wen? Let's make a deal. Um, but the question I had, the, the, there's a serious part and then a, a, a lighter part. The serious part is that, okay, wait, this is kind of the emerging world order where you can't solve a problem with just the US and Europe in a room figuring it out. The Chinese have their say and they have their stake, but we need them to do more, just like we need India and others to do more. Another interesting part, which you have in your book, is the Europeans were grumpy about this, but the person you could go to to solve that was Angela Merkel. Right. Um, so no, no uh, offense to our British friends, but, you know, she's Berlin is kind of the leader. Uh, she herself, the leader, it, it kind of foreshadowed a lot of the progress you made in foreign policy was like, 
try to get the Chinese to move forward, work with Merkel to, to bring along the Europeans, uh, take the developing world seriously, uh, see them, hear their concerns. And so I, I wonder what is, you know, because Paris is this unique agreement that comes out of Copenhagen where everybody's in on the deal. There are 200 countries in it now that we're back in. Um, everybody's got to do something, but it's going to be different. And the Chinese relationship to that is complicated, but they need to be in. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is that? What is that? How would you describe how that that international order, which is still kind of unfamiliar to Americans, the idea that we can't just go around and tell people what to do, the idea that it's not just us in Europe, the Chinese have to be a part of it, the idea that, you know, Europe needs to navigate amongst itself. What did you learn from Copenhagen about the world that actually was in terms of what the international order was. And and the lighter point is you have a great, so many great stories, you know, Reggie telling you that that was some gangster shit, you know, the, the, that summit was crazy. It was a shopping center where I remember where the staff office was. I wanted to give you one chance at the end of the interview, just you, you have some great light moments in this book about the absurdity of foreign trips too. So a very serious question about the, the international order implica- implications of Copenhagen and the lighter point of just, you clearly made a point in the book to lift up kind of what you and I used to joke about in top 10 lists and things like that of the, the kind of absurdities of, of foreign travel for a president. I wanted to, how, how much Copenhagen was a part of that as well? Well, uh, uh, look, I'll, I'll take the, 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 the second question first. Um, you know, all of us have some pretty great stories about um, foreign travel and bilaterals and summits. Part of the point that I try to uh, uh, communicate in the book is this stuff looks fancier and it has a bunch of flags and, you know, limousines driving up with kings and prime ministers, et cetera, getting out of cars, et cetera. But oftentimes they're not, it's organized like a trade show or a convention, right? (laughs) You know, you've got the, you know, the big round table in our case, but, you know, you've got the, you know, the pen and the pad, you know, commemorative pens, and some of them don't work that well. Some of them are really nice. The Chinese always had the fanciest stuff because they were trying to show off uh, through how nice their their pens and pads were. And, you know, you got the mints and sometimes there's snacks, sometimes not so much. And, uh, you know, you've got the photo with everybody and with the cheesy wave and, and uh and uh, but but I think as as you guys will acknowledge, at least during my presidency, what was still true, and I think this is what was lost during the Trump presidency, and I think will be a challenge, a necessary challenge for uh, the Biden Harris administration to confront. We still set the agenda in these meetings. And if we didn't set the agenda, there wasn't a, uh, nobody else had the combination of technical skill, bandwidth, diplomatic experience, relationships, trust, and power to be able to stitch together various interests to arrive at uh, something like a Paris Accord. And you know, I think what Copenhagen showed, and, and you know, I, I, I talk about how Ban Ki-moon, who was then the UN secretary, kept on nagging me about uh, how I needed to go. 
And me trying to put him off because it wasn't clear that we were actually going to be able to get any kind of deal of the sort that people wanted. At the time, everybody wanted a binding treaty of the sort that had happened in Kyoto, except America had never signed up for it. And we didn't have the votes in the Senate to have a binding treaty like that, nor did we think we should have a binding treaty that in which China, India, the fastest growing emitters had no responsibility. So we knew we couldn't get that. So there was an instinct, I think, in a lot of, uh, on the part of a lot of us in the administration to say, well, we shouldn't send the president to something that we know is not gonna work. And the UN's trying to organize with 194 countries and you, they all have delegates and you know, poor Denmark is being asked to, uh, to work with the UN to somehow hammer agreement. And as I point out, Denmark and all the Scandinavian countries, they punch above their weight. I, I mean, they're terrific, they're smart, they're humane, they're thoughtful, but they're still tiny countries. China's not gonna be muscled by Denmark into a deal it doesn't want. Um, at the end of the day, even though it was last minute, uh, we are the ones who come up with a plausible formula and then have the muscle both to say to the Europeans, uh, this is as good as we're going to do right now. Let's go ahead and take this quarter of a loaf and build on it. And then to say to the Chinese, listen, if you don't take this deal, we are going to do everything we can to make sure everybody knows that you didn't take the deal. You're the reason that we didn't have an agreement. And the prospect of potentially providing uh, mitigation and adaptation financing for poor countries and island nations that are being swallowed up by the oceans, uh, that's gonna be on you, not on us. Uh, we're, the, we're the ones who are able to see and then broker that kind of deal. Now, what that I think points to is the fact that sometimes uh, we, we have in, in our foreign policy thinking this on and off switch where we think either the US is this uh, dominant hegemon and everybody has to fall in line to whatever it is that we wanna do, right? Uh, if you're not part of the coalition of the willing, then we're not gonna do business with you. We're gonna punish you. We're gonna muscle you as, as the attempt the Bush administration made during the Iraq war. That's one view. And then the second view is that we're just one nation among many nations. And, you know, we, we shouldn't uh, be arrogant in that way. And, and uh, our role is simply to uh, try to see if we can arrive at uh, a global consensus. Well, the fact what Copenhagen showed is you're not going to get global consensus with 194 countries. The fact is some countries in the case of climate change, some countries are the big admitters. Some countries are the bigger economies. You're gonna to have to get agreement from them first. And in a multipolar world, what you have to do is to still assert American leadership, but that leadership is exercised in a different way. The, the, the leadership is exercised by example, right? So we start, taking steps ourselves to deal with climate change so that we can then go to other countries and say, see, we're taking this seriously, you need to also. It involves understanding what the other big countries are thinking, right? So I can't have a conversation with the Chinese about climate change if I don't acknowledge that they still have 300 million people 
who are in extreme poverty. Uh, and that uh, the Central Committee in China is constantly obsessed with the, the destabilization if they cannot stay on a 6% growth rate or 7% growth rate, uh, because they're not gonna be able to employ all those folks who are coming in from the countrysides. And I have to understand that India uh, you know, has to figure out how to electrify huge swaths of the country hundreds of millions of people who just don't have basic electricity. Um, and I have to understand the Europeans view that they have already made investments in clean energy. And so they're trying to figure out, well, why is it, if we're doing it, why is the bigger emitters doing anything, right? So, so the, 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 the role ends up being one of convener, agenda setter, persuader, uh, example setter, uh, but that's still leadership. It, it, it's not as if you then pull back. America is still central to getting the kind of international cooperation on big issues like nuclear proliferation or climate change or disaster relief or, or uh, dealing with a pandemic. Uh, we're still central to that process, but how we exercise that power uh, is, it's critical to be able to, to persuade and understand the perspectives and dynamics uh, in these other countries. It is not, here's what we're going to do and everybody else has to fall in line because uh, the time in which we had that kind of power, which by the way is always overstated, otherwise we wouldn't have had Vietnam, we would not have had you know, uh, uh, OPEC, right? I mean, there are all kinds of things that happened even at the, at, at the zenith of American power. Um, the world was always messier than we understood. But what we have to recognize is, is that other countries caught up. And, and the, the anomaly was that period right after World War II, to let's call it you know, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall or a few years after the fall of the Berlin Wall in which um, you, know, you have, a huge swath of the world behind an iron curtain. You've got China and India that are basically um, still at the early stages of development. And you've got Japan and Korea and uh, most of Europe in rubble. Uh, well, yeah, we had more power than, obviously that changes uh, once China uh, starts to grow and India begins to grow. and suddenly all that power is unleashed behind the Iron Curtain. But that doesn't mean that American leadership doesn't still matter. Um, and, and what we've seen over the last four years is when we're not exercising that leadership, where we're not presenting an agenda and a vision that is infused with democratic values and at least some consideration of human rights and thinks about generational challenges like climate change, nothing happens. Uh, it's not as if China filled that void. Uh, and or wants to fill that void. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the, the combination of humility in understanding that other countries matter and they have their own imperatives, but also a certain bold confidence in saying, you know what, uh, we, we have the ability uh, because of our unique position in the world, even today, uh, to uh, 
to lead. Uh, I, you know, that's the combination that I think, uh, you know, we, we need to be looking for. And the good news is, is that I think there are going to be a lot of veterans uh, of, of our administration working uh, inside uh, the, the Biden-Harris administration who will have learned some of these lessons. It doesn't mean that all the choices are going to be easy uh, and they'll get their share of criticism just like we did. But I, I do think they understand the, 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 the essential role America uh, continues to play in the world and should. Well, uh, there are so many more things we could have asked you about in the book. There's the Bin Laden operation, the Arab Spring, the Middle East peace talks. There is great just family stuff. There's Reggie stories. Couldn't get enough of those. There's Iowa. Uh, but you have been incredibly uh, gracious with your time, President Obama. So thank you so much. Everyone should check out A Promised Land. Uh, it was great to talk to you. It was fun. Thank you, guys. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Quinn Lewis for production support. And thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. <laughs>